Welcome to The Conversation. I'm your host, Benjamin Dixon. I'm pleased to be joined this afternoon by Charles F. Coleman Jr. He is a civil rights attorney and quickly emerged as one of the strongest thought leaders and modern voices in today's conversation on race, law, culture, and politics. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Ben. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. The pleasure is ours. Um, we have our eyes on the Derek Chauvin trial, um, the cop who is on trial for the murder of George Floyd. And we wanted to get some of your insights into how it's proceeding and some of the things that we can have um, an expectation of. Well, Ben, the, the biggest part of where we are now in terms of the challenges around the trial is actually getting the trial started. Yeah. Uh, the, the jury selection for this case is taking uh, an inordinate amount of time. And with a case like this, I, I, you know, I shouldn't even use the word inordinate because it's almost to be expected that is going to be difficult that with a case that had such uh, rippling implications and impact globally, that they would have a challenge finding a jury panel uh, or impaneling a jury that would be fair and impartial in terms of the facts. I mean, this is something that even if you didn't know the ins and the outs of the case, it's likely that you heard something about it or you saw a video or there was some sort of exposure that you may have had to it. So with that being the case, it's difficult not to have jurors who have been predisposed to some opinion on their behalf around what this case is looking like and what it's about. And so that's really been the biggest challenge. In fact, there were two jurors who were dismissed today mm. because of the fact that the $27 million settlement by the city uh, and, and being awarded to the, to the victim's family um, was something that they felt had influenced them. And so it was an argument being made by uh, Chauvin's counsel, and which was ultimately accepted by the judge, that these two new jurors who had been selected would need to be dismissed because of the fact that, you know, given this settlement, they uh, would be influenced. And that's going to, I think, have an impact on them being able to get a jury. I think that Quite frankly, that was probably the biggest hurdle that they had, aside mm -hmm. from maybe, you know, the actual footage of, of Chauvin coming into evidence. Other than that, I think the biggest challenge that they're going to have from a prosecutorial standpoint or just in terms of trying the case in general is going to be uh, their ability to find fair and impartial jurors. And, you know, and we've seen we've seen this before in other trials that are like high profile. What is the usual process in general when the situation is like this? Do they actually expect to be able to find people who are, quote unquote, fair and impartial, considering how saturated um, this case really is or, or this issue was throughout the summer and to this day? Well, the issue isn't necessarily a matter of whether they uh, don't know anything about the case or whether they. Uh, are not familiar or are familiar with the facts or what they believe to be the facts. The issue is, are you able to approach hearing the facts and the law from an unbiased place? Like, mm -hmm. that's the real question. The, the question isn't, you know, have you been on a rock for the past 12 months where you don't know that this has happened? Like, you know, like, that's unrealistic. And so judges and, 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 and attorneys know that. We understand that. The bigger question is basically... Are you so influenced and so biased that even as the judge may give you and instruct you on the law, that you're unable to listen to them and appreciate what you're being asked to do in this case, mm. as opposed to bringing your personal feelings into it? And I think that is a much more reasonable ask. I mean, you know, you're not going to find 
too many people who are going to be able to say that they know nothing about George Floyd, that they know nothing about the civil unrest which occurred and in, in response to his death. Uh, but the question is going to be, are you able to be fair and impartial in this matter? Are you able to listen to the judge in terms of his instructions to you on the law? Are you able to uh, be a fact finder in this case around these facts, not necessarily bringing your personal feelings into the case? And I think, like I said, that is a more reasonable ask. It's not necessarily a, a simple one, but in terms of the notion of like, it does beat the idea of, well, you can't, you don't have, you can't know anything about the case. You can't have read any articles or anything like that, because that simply just would be too tall an ask and, and too tall an order for a case like this. So let's talk about that process of striking jurors. Um, what goes into the, the attorneys coming to the conclusion that a potential juror cannot be unbiased. I don't imagine that some, you know, a lot of jurors are getting up there, potential jurors are getting up there and just outright saying that I'm going to be unbiased. Tell us what that process is like. Sure. So when you voir dire for a jury panel, what you're doing is you're asking them regular questions or the judge will ask them questions in some jurisdictions, the attorneys are allowed to do it, where you will ask them a series of questions and try to ascertain in a matter of you know, moments based off of their answer, whether you think they're a good fit for this case. So for example, you may want to know whether the members of the jury are, are related to police officers, whether they have police in their family, whether they have any negative experiences with police officers, things like that. And so as each, each attorney, both for the prosecution and for the defense, you get a certain number of what are called preemptive strikes which is basically, I'm striking you because I don't think you'll be a good for my, fit for my case and you don't give me good vibes and I don't want to do that, versus um, strikes for cause. Mm. And when you, when, you, when you bring up a challenge for cause, what you are saying is, based off of what they said, judge, I don't think that this person can be fair and impartial. So preemptive, you really don't need a reason for those. You get a certain number of those. But cost strikes are unlimited because cost strikes basically suggest that there is a legitimate reason that this person should not serve on this jury. It's not about my preference. It's not about what I think would be ideal. This person should not serve on this jury because something about what they've said indicates that they cannot be fair and impartial. And so then the judge will either agree, uh, the other attorney will have an opportunity to challenge that and say, oh, well, I don't necessarily think that what they said means that they can't be fair and impartial. It just means, you know, X, Y, Z. And typically that will require a sidebar where the judge will weigh in. The judge may ask the person for, a, you know, a, a series of follow-up questions in order to make a determination as to how serious or deeply entrenched uh, their bias may be, if there is any. And, you know, ultimately they're going to ask the, the, the number one question again, as a juror, are you able to be fair and impartial in this case, regardless right. of what other experiences you may have, have had, can you do it in this case? And I think, you know, in a case like this one, what is going to likely happen is that they're going to get down to the wire. They're going to start running out of jurors, I think. And I think that, you know, some of the, the hesitant, I don't know, maybe I can, that may have been cause for you to release a juror early on might actually still land a juror on the panel ultimately as you get down you know further in terms of your selection be becoming slimmer and slimmer 
That was going to be my question. So at the end of the day, they're going to they're going to ultimately have to seat a jury. Do we historically is there a usage of that preemptive strike that um, because I'm I'm thinking of prior cases and it just it comes to mind that this has been used almost to address the the racial makeup of juries, not particularly in this Derek Chauvin case, but in general. Could you speak to that? Sure. No. So there, there absolutely has historically been abuse of preemptive strikes and preemptive challenges. And because of that, there is a Supreme Court case that from that we have what's called a Batson charge and the Batson or Batson challenge rather. And a Batson challenge is when you can basically say that the racial or ethnic makeup of this jury is so slanted and so skewed that uh, these things will prevent the defendant from being able to get a fair trial or a fair trial from taking place. Mm. And at that point, what happens is the strikes, the preemptive strikes are reviewed uh, and they're reviewed for, is there a pattern here, a pattern of discrimination, a pattern of uh, somehow misuse or abuse in terms of how the preemptive strikes were used to either single out or exclude jurors of a certain race, jurors of a certain sex, uh, or, or any particular demographic that is ascertainable by a, you know a quick scan of what the jury looks like versus being an actual jury that's representative of the community and someone's peers. And and have you seen or has there been any conversations or articles about this particular case being subject to that same kind of influence uh, using the preemptive strike? I haven't seen that yet. I don't think they will necessarily see a bass in charge. We don't know the full makeup of the jury at this point. Um, and, you know, slowly we're getting information about, you know, who the jurors are, what their profiles are. And we don't even know all of the jurors' racial uh, or ethnic uh, profiles at this point. And so I don't think that we'll see that as of yet. I do sort of imagine that this is a process that we may see some sort of concessions being made as we go further into the case, because, like I said, they've had to reject a slew of jurors. And there, you know, this is taking place in a venue where the crime actually happened. Right. And so, you know, it's even more likely that these people will be charged and and influenced by the news. And so, at some point, you know, the the hesitancy that might have gotten someone kicked at first may not be enough to exclude them from a jury. So, it's going to be an interesting process to watch going forward. Absolutely. Um, this this case is really a, a, an important case, and we appreciate you coming um, and speaking with us. Charles Coleman, Jr., thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have Pleasure a great day. You too. All right. Uh, welcome to the conversation. We got a great guest for you guys. Uh, he's running for uh, Senate in Missouri as a Democrat. But he's going to be a populist. Hmm, fascinating. Uh, this should this is different. Uh, already we like it a little bit. So let's meet Lucas Kuntz uh, and see how if we like it more. <laughs> so Lucas, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Thanks, Jake. Uh, great. It's really exciting to be here. We've had a real fun time. Uh, all right, excellent. Look, I want to get into why you're running and who you are, uh, and and what brought you to this moment because it's always informative to know that. Um, but I want to start with uh, what happened when you came back from the Marines. So you did 13 years in the Marines? Yeah, 13 years in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And so Semper Fi, I, I don't, I, I'm yeah. not Marines. I don't, I don't really do that. But I just know that Semper Fi is super cool. So I wanted to say it to you. Um, 
Okay, so <laughs> it is super uh, cool. I'm glad you know that. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, nobody. Look, whatever you think of the Marines, nobody thinks Semper Fi isn't cool. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so you were poor. You go to the Marines. We we'll get back to the uh, poverty and all. <laughs> okay, we're in a, a fun way of doing this interview. But you come back from the Marines. You c come back to your hometown. What's your hometown, and what did you find? So I grew up in Jeff City, Missouri, and yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, we were kind of in a poor neighborhood, but uh, but one of the things that I found when I came back each time, uh, you know, I, I deployed to Iraq, and then I come home in 2009, and the first house I ever lived in is bulldozed down. It's now, it fell apart, it's now an empty lot. I come back later from Afghanistan, and the house I grew up in, joined the Marine Corps out of, which was actually only four, day, four doors down from the other house, is vacant and abandoned. The corner store's all boarded up, and it's just, it's really hard to see what's happened to my old neighborhood. So what do you think went wrong? As you look around, uh, what didn't we do right? Yeah, I mean, I don't just think what went wrong. I know what went wrong. And what, wrong, what went wrong was we had massive corporations buying off the politicians in Missouri for a, you know several decades, and these guys managed our decline. They essentially stripped Missouri for parts. So they partnered with these companies to let them uh, move overseas, ship jobs overseas, or sit, ship the headquarters out of state. Really just globalization and corporate consolidation, all driven by corporate power, uh, just, just pushed Missouri to the brink. And if you see like a chart of the economic recovery from the Great Recession, Missouri is just completely flat and a bunch of the other states in the area go up. It's really sad and, uh, and it, was, it was fueled by you know, massive corporate power because stockholders wanted to make a buck. Okay, now, uh, we like what we're hearing. Okay, so that is, <laughs> I don't like what I'm hearing. I wish it never happened. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But Lucas, that's a disaster. That's a disaster for the country. And the reason, of course, we'd like to hear it is because you're at least acknowledging it, which almost no other politician does. Uh, and they just keep telling us the stock market's doing well, as if that's somehow related to Jeff City, Missouri. Uh, and it ain't. And so it's heartening to hear it. And it, you're, look, you were super proactive. You already got TYTLucas.com. <laughs> so if folks yeah. want to help, you're going to go to TYTLucas.com so we can get real people in the, into the Senate, too. Uh, and that would be amazing. Uh, Lucas, you've already been in, endorsed by PCCC, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so you're coming out of the gate really strong with a progressive group backing you. So that's give you gives you some bona fides. So, but let, let's go back to what's happening in the middle of the country, Lucas. I, I get my sense is this: that the coasts, especially the media centers like New York and Washington and the power centers, have no earthly idea how devastated the middle of the country is. And the middle of the country, because they're sitting fat on the coasts, uh, they do have their money in the stock market. The stock market is doing well. I think that they genuinely look around going, everyone I know is doing great. I don't know what people are complaining about. Meanwhile, in the middle of the country, I feel that there's a rage growing because of how it's being hollowed out. Uh, do, I, do, do I get the right sense on that? Am yeah. I missing anything about that? You're, you're absolutely right, Jake. And I can give you actually a concrete personal example. And so that's that, uh, you know, in 2014, my dad spent two years trying to sell the house that I grew up in in our old neighborhood. It's a nice house. It's one of these old Sears kit homes. And these things, you know, you can find them all over the country because they came out of a catalog, the Sears catalog. And, you know, everyone was telling everyone on the coast was talking about how great the economy is, how we'd recovered from the Great Recession and, and you know, everything was booming. My dad tried to sell that house for two years. 
he got $40,000 on it and he owed 80 on it. So when they say, you know, all you got to do to get wealthy in this country or to build wealth is to buy a house and, you know, work hard and keep your head down, that's exactly what he did. And when he retired, he was left with a pile of debt. And the real thing that, that upset me about this house was at the same time, you know, I was stationed at the Pentagon at the time and I would walk by the exact same house that I grew up in, the exact same Sears kit home. And that house is right now worth about $900,000. So the exact same house in Washington, D.C., where all our money is getting stuck to is $900,000. And back home here in Jeff City, it's $40,000. That's the difference. Yeah. So, uh, Lucas, uh, there's so many things that come out of that. By the way, if, if you want to get his whole backstory, they did a great little ad on it. Uh, and so we'll put that link in the description box below. If you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook, we'll also put the link to TYTLucas.com if you want to help uh, donate to get a populist campaign. You're not taking any corporate PAC money, right? Lucas. No, 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 no. I, I, one of the things I want to do is abolish corporate PACs completely. Okay. And we're having a further conversation now. Okay. Now we're <laughs> yeah. bowling. We need to take it next level, man. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, you know, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but one of them is how do you move the democratic party? Cause right now you'll be on the outer edge of the democratic party. They, they hate populist talk. The leadership does. Um, and you're never going to win in Missouri if you go there and be a corporate stooge. Like, oh, honestly, in my opinion, you don't have to back it up that every single person Chuck Schumer picks, right? They've got corporate Democrat written all over them. I mean, Claire McCaskill, you, again, don't say anything. I know you'll get yourself in trouble, okay? But, but like, so how do you move the Democratic Party uh, in the direction of uh, that you're going, populism, where you go to, hey, look, man, this isn't working for us. We're getting killed out here in Missouri. How do you move them in that direction? I, I, I got two points on this. And the first one is that I am very, very concerned that the Josh Hollies of the world, you know, Joshua Hawley is from Missouri. And this guy comes down here with this fake populist agenda, agenda, and we're not providing them a good alternative for that. That's one of my big motivations for running is that, you know, we need to show that we can have an inclusive progressive populism that actually takes care of people. And if we don't do that, we're going to keep losing uh, people in the Midwest who feel like they've been left behind and are being convinced of who the who the villain is, you know, being somebody who it's not. Like the villain here is corporate monopolies. It's, it's nothing else. It's massive corporations buying our politicians. But they get tricked on all these other issues and people like Josh Hawley, who wants to do absolutely nothing about the system that keeps us one disaster away from being on our knees, begging him for money. Uh, you know, he's been able to take advantage of this, and we're going to convince the Democratic Party by having a strong message and winning. People in this state have been demanding a change in who fundamentally has power in our country. I see that. I feel it every single day. You know, we've passed progressive ballot measure after progressive ballot measure here. Most, most people around the country wouldn't know that, but we fought back right to work. We passed Medicaid expansion. We increased the minimum wage way above what the federal limit is. And, uh, and we pass medical marijuana. That's what we want. We want power out of corporate hands and in our own hands. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're running on. And I'm really excited about it. So um, you you grew up poor. Uh, tell, tell us uh, about your upbringing a little bit and how that affected you and who you are today. I grew up... I grew up in a magical neighborhood. Like it was, there were kids running all over the place. We were in and out of each other's houses all the time. Everyone parented us, took care of us. Didn't matter if you were black and white. Like we were all together. That's that's like that's the beauty of this country, man. And and yes, we had we had hard times, and none of us had very much money. Um, 
you know, we live paycheck to paycheck. My parents, I remember them writing checks at the grocery store and asking the cashier not to not to cash it. And the manager, because it was a local store, not some big monopoly, actually knowing us and knowing that we were good for us and for it and taking care of us. And and I and I remember, you know, when I was a kid, my my little sister was born with a heart condition and we went bankrupt. Right. And the reason we made it through that, though, was that the people around us took care of it, took care of us. You know, they didn't have any more money than we did. But down at my mom's prayer group, they'd raised money for us. I remember sitting in our living room and just like more lasagna and casserole rolling through that front door than we could ever eat. And in my mind, what we need to do is we need to make sure that that's who has power in this country. That's who makes decisions. At that level, we know how to take care of each other. It's what we believe in. And I'm just I'm tired of these massive corporations coming in and stripping our communities for parts. That's exactly what they've done. They stripped us for parts. They don't treat us like human beings. And, you know, they deny the right to vote to many people. They just they just they don't care about us. And I want to change that. That's powerful, Lucas. Uh, and so one one more question. So you uh, worked at an organization that fights against corporate power. So first, yes. real quick, tell us what that is. And then it, most importantly, yes, but how does that affect the actual people of Missouri? That that Because sometimes that, that work could feel esoteric or like that's an interesting intellectual exercise, but how does it affect my life in Missouri? Yeah, so I, I, when I ended my time in the Marine Corps, I joined a nonprofit called the American Economic Liberties Project. And what we do is we fight big agriculture companies, pharmaceutical cartels, big tech companies, and the people that really just control our economy and our way of life. And it, these massive corporations, especially monopolies, they impact us every single second of every single day. It's very difficult to start a small business now because the marketplace is so oppressive. You know, we have fewer smaller businesses than we've ever had before. Entrepreneurship is down. Uh, if, you're, if you're a small farmer or any sort of farmer who's not a massive corporate farm, you're getting pushed on, on every single end on, on the agricultural side. You know, you pay more for, for the inputs and you get less money when you sell or, and you have to try to compete with people who can sell for cheaper. Uh, they destroy our land. We have massive agricultural um, corporations in our, in our state and in our country who destroy the land. And when the bill for that comes due, guess who's going to pay for it? We're going to all pay for that. Um, and they also just they don't care about workers. They, they push down wages. They they uh, and, and then, you know, when on the pharmaceutical side, the insulin cartel is a great example. They've taken the price of insulin from twenty five dollars to over two hundred and fifty dollars over the last couple decades. It's criminal. They're taking advantage of us. They're squeezing everyone every second of every single day. And it's time we take away their power and bring it back to ourselves. All right. That's a great answer. So, look, uh, you got to give Lucas credit to thinking ahead. Uh, so uh, go to uh, TYTLucas.com if you want to help a populist not taking corporate PAC money who actually wants to fight corporate power to get you higher wages and to protect you. Uh, that is an excellent platform to run on. So uh, TYTLucas.com. We, we, we got to do this again because there's a great heartwarming story about how everybody in the town chipped in to get you to go to Yale and you got Pell Grants and that's how the government working well uh, actually helps people. So uh, it's it's amazing that you've, you, you've gotten this far, Lucas. And now with these endorsements, it looks like you're one of the major candidates for Senate in Missouri. And that's a hell of a thing. So uh, thank you for joining us, Lucas. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. I'm really happy to come back. Great.